It's Philippians 3, 12 to 19, if you want to put your finger in your Bible there or turn to it on your iPhone or whatever. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at. And, and what we're going to get out of this text is, as we come into this, this message on discipleship, is the expectations of discipleship, the, the struggle with the flesh and the sin that we know we have to confront in being disciples of Christ and that we're not perfected yet, that, that we have the love for God, that we, we do cherish his kingdom and who he is and what he's done for us. We understand that he loves us. We have the sound teaching of the Bible and we read our Bibles, but what do we do with it and how does it work out in our life? And that's what Paul is going to, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about in Philippians 3. Verses 12 to 19, and I'm just going to pray before we look into this word. Father God, it's so good to come and open up your word and to have these words specifically written by this man, the Apostle Paul. And uh, the fact that he's writing them, as we'll see, makes them all the more powerful and all the more encouraging to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, that... I would diminish and you would increase. That it would be your word that speaks to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Philippians 3. Now this is, just to give you a little bit of context, which is important to to our series, is that you remember as we talked about the treasure in the field, uh, the man that went and discovered the treasure and he cherished it, and so he went and joyfully sold all that he had. And I mentioned in that sermon that the closest illustration that we have of this being lived out, especially in the life of the Apostle Paul, actually comes earlier in the chapter of Philippians 3. And earlier in this chapter, just before he gets very appropriately to this result of his treasuring of Christ, it's how he lives his life in Christ. And so if you were just to back up a few verses, and I'm not going to do it, but if you were to back up a few verses, you would see that section where Paul describes how he counts everything that he had in this life as rubbish in compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And so then, he, in enunciating that, or in illustrating that, and, and proclaiming that, he then goes on later on in the chapter of Philippians to talk about now how he then lives in the knowledge of that value of Jesus Christ, and that nothing that he has is worthy, that it would all be gladly given up. He says in Philippians 3, 12-19, Not that I have already obtained this, perfection, nor am I already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example or pattern that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with mindset on earthly things. That's our text for today, and if you want to, put a finger in your Bible at 1 Peter 4, 1-4. That's kind of a parallel scripture to this, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to read it for you, but we will touch on 1 Peter 4, 1-4, and it might be profitable to you to see the references there. So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. Probably he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's in prison, we know that. We're not sure which imprisonment it is, but probably it's his imprisonment in Rome. He's been in prison so many times, it's hard to pin down which of his letters he wrote in what prison. 
But he's not writing the Philippians in response to any crisis. This is an important thing to realize. A lot of his letters, especially to the Corinthians and even to the Galatians and to the Ephesians, he's writing in response to some trouble in that church. And in the letter to the Ephesians, he's not responding to any sort of crisis or problem in the Philippian church. There's nothing particularly wrong with the church in Philippi at this point in time, it seems. Paul is writing to express appreciation for them and to encourage the church there. And there's a great deal of joy in the Philippians letter. In fact, people call the letter to the Philippians the epistle of joy. But we see here in this text, and we're going to start at the end of the text to set the pattern or the 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 context for the front, we see here in this text that there's something that does fill Paul with grief. In fact, in this epistle of joy, it moves Paul to tears. He is weeping, he says, even as he writes this letter. Paul is moved to tears because he is witnessing those that he thought were believers or fellow disciples of Jesus are now living as enemies of Christ. And so... They're not walking in a manner worthy of their calling. They're following after the desires of the flesh. And rather than treasuring in Christ, in short, they're not living as disciples or according to the gospel or according to the pattern set by the apostles. And it moves Paul to tears. And we see that in verse um, where it is, 18. For many of whom I have often told you and who now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so in this letter of joy or in this epistle that Paul is mournful, he's grieving over the fact that there are people who are not walking as disciples, that they're not walking the way they should be. And so he is encouraging the Philippians in a way of how to walk and how they should walk. And that there's implications of the gospel in the way that disciples are meant to live. That the the gospel doesn't just land on you. You don't have this revelation that everything in your life could be counted as rubbish for the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ and then that not have it affect your life. But Paul sees this even in those that called themselves believers around him. And so that's what we're looking at today. What are those expectations or what it is? And it's... Even though Paul is grieved by the lives that he sees these so-called believers living, and he knows that they should be better, it's important that we understand that Paul's not expecting them to be perfect. In fact, Paul does not even consider himself perfect. Paul doesn't think that he's attained some sort of super spiritual perfection that these other people are falling short of. Paul's been a Christian for about 30 years when he writes this. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He's lived as closely with Christ as anyone in his own generation. And that's why it's so incredible that it's the Apostle Paul writing these words. He's probably lived closer to Christ than his generation or maybe any generation since. I mean, he's raised people from the dead by his faith. And yet here he says he is not yet made perfect. The Apostle Paul hasn't made it yet. And you can ask, you know, Paul, don't you have the knowledge of Christ? And he will say, yes. I do have the knowledge of Christ. I've been granted that. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now I know in part, then I will know in full. Paul says, I I only know in part. I, I do have some knowledge of Christ, but I only know partly what I will know in the end. And you can ask, but Paul, don't you have perfect power in Christ? And Paul says, yes, I have the power of Christ living in me, but not so fully that I never sin or fail. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, don't you remember I told you that God put a thorn in my flesh to keep me from becoming arrogant? Right? I don't know yet how to walk rightly in my flesh to the point that God actually has to cripple me in order to keep me humble. So I'm not perfect yet. 
And you can ask, but Paul, don't you have the glory of Christ? And Paul will answer, I do have Christ's glory, but not yet perfectly. In Philippians 3.20, just a little later, later on, he says, you know, we are still waiting for our lowly bodies to be transformed to be like his glorious body. So we have a glory now, but it's not the glory that we're yet to attain. And you say, Paul, but don't you have perfect fellowship with Christ? And Paul would say, I do have fellowship with Christ, but my fellowship with Christ is not perfect yet, as good as you might think it is. It's not perfect yet. Don't you know that I don't even know what I should be praying or how to pray properly? I wrote in Romans 8 that the Spirit has to intercede for my prayers because I don't know how to pray. So if I don't even know how to pray or what to pray for properly, how can you say I have perfect fellowship with Christ? It's not perfect yet. So Paul could say, look, I have all these things. Christians, we have all these things that are given to us through Christ, but they're not perfect yet. I have to keep growing. I have to keep running the race. In other words, you can say, and sort of the old saying is that sin no longer reigns, but sin remains. And that's the reality of the Christian life, that we are not perfect yet. Even the Apostle Paul confesses, I am not perfect. I have not attained it. He says in verse 13, very similar, repeating himself, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul has a very conservative sense or a very restrained sense of his own accomplishment. He has a holy dissatisfaction and a holy discontent with his own sanctification process. And this is terribly missing from most of our church today, I think. We are far too satisfied with ourselves or satisfied in the grace that we feel is due us. And I get it that a lot of you out there are saying, Paul, I disagree with you. I actually don't feel all that great about myself. You know, I don't think I'm all that. I don't, I don't think I'm a great person. How can you say that in the church that there's some sort of lack of humility or lack that I don't feel good? Well, here's the difference because I think that you do. You probably do don't feel very good about yourself. But if we feel any dissatisfaction in ourselves or discontent in ourselves, I suggest that it's not a proper guilt at dishonoring a holy God, it's only because we've wounded our own pride or we've not measured up to our own set of standards. We feel bad, if we feel bad about anything in ourselves, it's that we didn't succeed in the way that we hoped at this point in our life or we, didn't, we don't earn as much as we wanted or we don't have the things that we see that our neighbor has or that we don't look the way that we want to look or that we have regrets about things that we've done in the past. We just feel bad because our pride in ourselves is wounded or we've not measured up to our own expectations. But what Paul is talking about here, his holy discontent is, do we feel bad because our holy God is reproached by our behavior? I don't think in the church today we feel that. Not down at the base. We might not feel great about ourselves because it's just because we don't think we're, you know, what we hoped we would be. We don't feel the discontent that Paul has because we realize that our behavior has brought reproach upon a holy God. That's where our dissatisfaction should be. But Paul, as a disciple, acknowledges his imperfection and his falling short as a type of discontentment, not in himself and how great he should be or should have been, but because of the fact that he knows that by not being perfect, he brings reproach upon a holy God and he's fallen short of the glory of God and he's not honoring him in his life the way that he should honor him. Does that land on us the way it lands on Paul? Does it land on us that our life does not honor God to the extent that it should? Is that what causes us to be discontent? In the life of a disciple, it does. So Paul says one of the things here he says about not being perfect is you should have a, a sort of spiritual discontent. You should have a holy discontent or dissatisfaction with the fact that you have not yet given the glory to God that you could give him. 
and that day after day after day we fall short of giving God the glory that He deserves. But He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. And this is important. This is so important the way He phrases this here. Notice that Paul does not say, I press on in the Christian life to make it my own so that Jesus will make me His own. Because I don't want you to hear that message today. I don't want you to hear the message that we have to try really hard to achieve more or to do better so that Jesus will somehow accept us because we finally measured up. That's not what Paul is saying. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If an unbeliever was here today, if you were not sure of your relationship with Christ or you're just sort of exploring Christianity here today, it would be really easy for you to hear the message of this sermon or the message of Christianity as simply... Stop being bad and instead be good, right? That's what discipleship often sounds like to us. Oh, we're having a series on discipleship. That means we have to stop being bad and start being good. And the culture has built that into the message of Christianity from the movies people watch, from the TV shows, from just uh, even bad theology and bad teaching from our own churches sometimes. People have gotten the mistaken idea that Christianity or discipleship is just about stop being a bad person and start being a good person. And that's not what discipleship is about. That's why I wanted to start with treasuring Christ. And I want to make clear that that's not the gospel. If that was the gospel, then we would all be in trouble. Because none of us are good. There's a little book that we give out in our gift bag called How Good is Good Enough by Andy Stanley. And you read that book and it just talks about the difference about being good and being forgiven. And the gospel is not about being good, it's about being forgiven. The gospel is that God has loved us at the cost of His Son and receives and accepts us not because we've stopped being bad and tried to be good, but because Jesus lived perfectly and died perfectly in our place. And the benefits of that perfect sacrifice, which is being justified before God and made righteous before God and spiritually regenerated and set free from sin and inheriting eternal life and all those hundred other things I could talk about, all of those benefits of the gospel we receive by faith alone. We don't contribute anything to them. We receive receive all of those things, what together we call salvation because God accomplished it. That's the good news of the gospel. And so it's important that we understand how Paul phrased this here. He says, I press on, I, I strive after this walk with God and this perfection. I strive after perfection to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Not because it's going to earn me something with Christ Jesus. And the problem is for many Christians today, they become convinced that the gospel and believing in Jesus Christ and, and Christ making you his own is the end of their search and not the beginning. It's the end of their pursuit of Christ and not the beginning. And discipleship, as Paul describes it here, or this striving after God, he says that's just the beginning. It's because Christ laid hold of me that now I begin my pursuit of Him. But we get it backwards. We think, oh, this person was looking for Jesus and they found Jesus or Jesus laid a hold of their life and they think, great, I'm done. I became a Christian. I'm finished. And Paul says, no, that's just when the race starts. That's just when you start your pursuit of God. Paul would have nothing of the attitude that you're done when you first encounter God and when God first lays a hold of you. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus and encountering Him as the treasure in the field or the pearl of great price, cherishing Him above all other things, that demands pursuit. And to say anything different would be like saying that, that once you're married, your relationship with your spouse requires no more effort. There's no more pursuit in that relationship. You walk out of the church and you say, that's it, honey, I'm done. 
I'm not pursuing you anymore because we're married. It, it's done. My pursuit, the purpose of my pursuit is finished and we just, we're done. How would that, what, what would that marriage, how long would that last? Like a day, right? I mean, we know that when we love and when we cherish and when we treasure, we pursue. And Paul's saying the exact same thing. I love and I cherish and I treasure Jesus and His making me His own, His choosing me is just the begin of my pressing after Him. It's the beginning of the race that Paul is going to run. And so Paul says the Christian life is a life of laying hold of Jesus because He's laid hold of you. And then he goes on and he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. So in other words, how are we to live? How, how do we live in this pursuit of Jesus? Not in perfection, but also not in the sin of the past. Paul, the disciple, lives according to who he is in Christ and aiming at the goal. The past is only sin and regret for Paul. And so he says, I forget. I forget the past. I forget the sin that's behind me. I don't dwell on that. I don't dwell on the regrets. I don't dwell on my failures. I understand that I'm imperfect and I have not attained it yet, but that's not where I live. I live in the future. I live striving towards the goal. He says, God has forgotten my sins. Why would I remember my sins? God has forgotten my unholy past. Why would I remember it? Hebrews 8.12 says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And he's quoting Isaiah 43 there when he says that. Or Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4.3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Peter says, The time that is past has been enough for that. You've had well enough time for all of that stuff in the past. That is not for the future. The past has been enough. Now we strive forward. We're putting something behind. We're putting sinful living behind and we're setting something ahead of us which is living for God's glory. Paul says in Romans 6.1, he's repeating the same thing, the same idea. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Paul is saying the life of a disciple is a life of forgetting and putting away the old sinful patterns and the old sinful habits and counting them as dead, all those old patterns of living. Patterns that we adopted from a fallen world. Patterns that we accepted from a sinful culture. Patterns that we inherited from broken families. Patterns that we inherited from our own fleshly desires. Paul says those examples and those patterns and that pattern of living is to be counted as dead and you forget what is behind and you strive for the future. Those old sinful patterns do not give any glory to God, nor do they produce in us any lasting joy. And the disciples of Jesus are living by a new pattern. They're living by a new way in their life, out of their love. Great, great Pastor John Stott wrote this. He said, Every Christian's biography is in two volumes. Volume 1 covers all of life before we were united with Christ in His death as we came to Him in repentance and faith. And the second volume begins when we encountered Jesus and we laid hold of His great gift of salvation and His Spirit placed in our hearts, adopted, strode out in obedience, and we were baptized and went on to live our lives. And so he says there's two volumes. There's the volume of your life before Jesus laid hold of you and you laid hold of Him. And there's the volume of your life afterwards. And what Paul is saying that as Christians is that if we spend any time living or if we spend any time being tempted to live our lives as if we are in the past, as if we are in volume 1, then we have to go to 1 Peter 4 or we have to go to Romans 6 or we have to go to Philippians 3 and we have to take on a new way of thinking when we are tempted 
to live in the past or we spend any time living in volume one, the role of a disciple is to count ourselves dead to that past, forget the the past, and move to what is forward. That's what Paul is saying. Don't live in volume one of your life. Live in volume two. Volume two is where the glory and the joy resides. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're living in volume one or you're tempted to live in volume one. You just ask forgiveness. You set your sights on Jesus. You treasure and nurture Him. And you forget the past. And you move forward, pressing on towards the goal. And then Paul says, Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Or if you were in 1 Peter, which is sort of a parallel verse, Peter says a similar thing. He says, arm your way with the same way of thinking. So in other words, let those of us who are mature think this way. Now this is an incredibly interesting and clever statement by Paul. I love this verse. He's essentially saying that any of us who are mature or complete, and it's more clever in the Greek because he actually uses a version of the word perfect here. He says teleos rather than teleu. Teleu is perfect, teleos is mature. So he's it's kind of a pun, it's, he's doing wordplay here. So he says this incredibly interesting thing. He says, any of us who are mature, or teleos, in other words, those of you who consider yourself perfect will think like I do, which is that we're not perfect yet. And if you perfect people think differently on that point or on any other point, God will show you that you are wrong about that too. So Paul is saying, all you people who think you're perfect, you'll agree with me that we're not perfect. And if you think you're perfect or you think anything else differently than I do, God will show you you're wrong. I mean, on one hand, it's just staggeringly arrogant coming from anyone other than Paul, right? And on the other hand, it's immensely instructional because Paul is simply saying that the mature way of thinking is to recognize that you're immature. The perfect way of thinking is to recognize that you are imperfect. And then he slips in a second lesson by his own example when dealing with people who have not discovered this truth So he's writing to them, he's saying, if you don't believe this or you don't think, God, that that's true, he gives his own example here, he slips in, he says, people who have not discovered this truth or any other biblical truth, the answer is not to argue with them, but to leave that revelation up to God. It's a fantastic principle of discipleship that Paul teaches this lesson on being and living in a discipled life. And it's kind of weird, the wordplay there, so I get that it's a little bit confusing the way I'm describing it. But he is saying, instruct people in this way of discipleship and the way they should go, and if they're not mature enough to understand that, then just say, God will reveal it to you. Just don't argue with them. Just leave that revelation up to them. And that's so important as we are discipled and we disciple, that it's not our job to do God's job. That as we disciple people, even as as Paul is discipling the Philippians here, he's saying, you know, I've taught you these things, I've instructed you this, I've given you the mature way of thinking, but if you disagree with me, you know what? I'm just going to leave it to God to reveal that to you. Because I know that if it's true, I know that it's true that this is the mature way of thinking and the Holy Spirit's teaching me that, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you the same thing too. So it's not my job to do God's job in you. It's just my job to teach and instruct and be an example and then let God work in your life. And so I just love this verse because of the pun, (laughs) because of the wordplay, and because of the double lesson that's in there. We don't force people to adopt every truth about Scripture instantly in their Christian life. We are all imperfect in our understanding, and in that imperfection, we need God to reveal those things to us. We can instruct and we can be instructed, but we can't force acceptance of God's truth. It has to be revealed. 
And so Paul shows grace here and tolerance to those who are less mature than he in their walk. And even at the same time, as sort of tweaking their nose a little bit with his wordplay. Perhaps to make them think that maybe they're not as smart as they think they are. You know, just throw a little doubt on their certainty of their perfection in their walk. They need that little bit of holy discontent that they're not quite as good as they think they are. And then Paul says, I'm just going to let God do God's work, but here's what I'm going to do, brothers. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So instead of just beating on his point into them about these are the things you have to believe, Paul just says, look at me, just imitate me. If you want to see how to live as a Christ follower, as a disciple, imitate me. Especially, he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we started this with Paul weeping over those who were walking as enemies of the cross and whose God was their bellies and who gloried in their shame. And he's saying to the Philippians, I'm weeping over those people, so don't be them. Imitate me. Walk as I walk. I've been doing this for over 30 years. And you see my life. You see that it's trustworthy. You see that it's faithful. I'm not perfect, he says. I I haven't attained it yet. And so I want you to do the same thing I'm doing. I want you to strain after it. I want you to strive after it. It's not about being perfect. I'm not saying I'm perfect, and so be like me as I'm perfect, but be like me as I imitate Christ. Be like me as I run the race for endurance. And he says, don't just imitate me, but imitate others who follow the same pattern. Last week we talked about a pattern of sound words, a pattern of sound teaching, and this week is about a pattern of godly living. That the disciple, as disciples, we should follow after patterns of sound words, patterns of sound teaching, patterns of sound doctrine, Paul said to his Timothy and Titus. And then we should do that. And that will transform us. But what follows after learning and after knowledge and after understanding who God is in a pattern of sound teaching comes a pattern of sound living or of godly living. And that's what Paul's talking about here. This is the pattern of godly living. It's that you strive after God. You imitate those. You can look around this church and you can see people who are spiritually down the road further than you are. And Paul says, imitate those people. And we talked about that two Sundays ago when I talked about the venerable use of venerable older Christians in our church, the purpose of age. So Paul says here, imitate me as disciples and imitate those who imitate me. But a question comes up. We get quickly into application here of just why live this way? What is the encouragement to live this way? Why follow this pattern? You said, Pastor Paul, you said that the gospel is that I am already saved by grace, that I am entitled to heaven, and that I have all these promises guaranteed to me, and I have all of these things entrusted to me as an inheritor by faith. And I will someday enter into all of that glory, into the fullness of all of those things, and into the presence of God. And so, Paul, why are you saying then, why bother to go, to grow? If it's all by faith, as you so plainly made it clear that it was by faith and not by works, then why is it? Why do we follow this pattern? Why is this discipleship? Well, the greatest reason and the first reason is that you don't need to have a reason. You want to live according to what pleases God because of your love for Him. If Jesus is the pearl of great price, you truly view Him as the treasure found in the field so that you joyfully sell all to receive Him, then I don't even have to explain to you or justify why you would want to do and live the life like Paul lives it here, pursuing hard after Jesus. If He really is the treasure of your life, then of course you want to be His disciple, and of course you want to live the way that He wants you to live. 
John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will also keep my commandments. So on the one hand, I don't even have to answer that question for true believers because true believers, you already know why. It's like, Paul, you don't have to tell me why. Because I, I, I found that pearl of great price. And I get it. And I love Jesus and who he is and what he's done for me. So there's no question as to what I want to do with my life. Even though I'm not perfect, I know what my motivation is. It's because I love Jesus. And so you don't have to go on to the rest of the points. I'm done right there. But if you need a little of encouragement, so there are good reasons too. So if you need them, I'll give you some reasons for both God and us as to why we're expected and why disciples need to should live this way. The first is for God, and it starts with God all the time. The purpose of godly living, the purpose of a pattern of godly living has its roots in the same purpose of everything else in the universe and everything else that we've been talking about in discipleship, and it's because of God's glory and for God's glory. It glorifies God, number one. And that's what Christianity and what Christians are supposed to do with our lives, is we are supposed to bring glory to God. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so the first answer is, we want to live this life, we want to live the life of disciples, pleasing to God, because it gives God glory. And God is worthy of glory. And so as his disciples, we live in a way that brings him glory. And then secondly, we live this way in this pattern because the glory that God does have is protected from reproach because when you live a godly life and you pursue that goal, your life is consistent with the character of Christ and it's consistent with the words of Scripture and it's consistent with the character and principles that He upholds in Scriptures and thus you bring no reproach on Him. Again, 1 Peter 2.12, same thing, that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds. In other words, we live this way to bring glory to God, but also to make sure that whatever glory he does have, we don't tarnish it. We do as little as possible to bring reproach on it. And then thirdly, it glorifies God by displaying his truth. A pattern of a godly living is literally wearing on the outside of your life the truth of a redeemed life with God so that others can see it. The point of our life as disciples is that people will see us and they will see, look at the healing in his life. Look at the redemption in his family. Look at the love he has for his enemies. Look at his uh, care for his family. Look at his work ethic at work. Look at the way that he cares for people. You are wearing on the outside as a disciple the truth of Scripture and that brings glory to God. Because they say whatever it is, whatever he's following, whatever that truth is, it's a good truth. And so it glorifies God. But the other reason that we want to live this discipled life is also for ourselves. Because God has worked it out, as, as we've often revisited, that our joy and His glory are not in conflict. That He is glorified by our taking joy in Him. And so there's a benefit to us of the discipled life. Well, first of all, it's just God's will for us. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is God's will, that you become holy. And so as disciples of Christ and disciples of God, we want this in our life because it's His will for us. That's a simple one, period. Nothing more needs to be said. It's God's will for us that we become holy, and so we should strive to be holy. But secondly, a pattern of godly living preserves us. It preserves us from the sorrows and the tragedies that come from spiritual weakness, which is not enjoyable to any believer at any time. And if you've been there, believers and Christians, brothers and sisters, and you've been there in your life when you've been in that point of spiritual weakness where you've been living in volume one, is it ever enjoyable for you to live in volume one? No. It's brutal living in volume one when you know you've received volume two in your life, when you have Jesus. 
And so a pattern and building a pattern of imitating godly living preserves us from the sorrows and tragedies that come from spiritual weakness. As we disciple ourselves and discipline ourselves to live in godly patterns, it preserves us from costly errors and bad choices that destroy our joy. And then thirdly, this pattern of godly living or holy living grants us assurance. When there's spiritual progress in your life, there's a sense that you belong to God because you can see His work and you can see your calling and election become sure. Living a pattern of a godly life verifies the regeneration that has taken place. It makes demonstrable to you the fact that you are truly changed because you're in the progress of making visible in your life the change that God has worked. And so one of the benefits to us as Christians as we set ourselves on living a pattern of a godly life and we are succeeding in living a pattern of a godly life is we get assurance. We get reaffirmation that the gospel that we laid hold to is the true gospel and the truth that we have is the true truth because it's working in our life and the Holy Spirit is active and so we gain assurance. And then fourthly, it qualifies us for ministry and service in the kingdom of God which is your purpose. And Ephesians 4.12 and Colossians 1.28 talk about our purpose. And so you're a disciple of Jesus. You found Him. He's laid hold of you. You're laying hold of Him. You're living your life in a pattern of godly living. You know what that does for you is that opens up opportunities of service. Because the reality is it is very difficult to serve in the kingdom of God if your life does not reflect a pattern of godly living. If you're not living as a disciple, there are not a lot of places you are going to serve in the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, it just works out that way. That leaders and servants in God's kingdom are called to be disciples and called to a high standard of living. Not perfection. Not some kind of holy pedestal that we put people on. But people that are pursuing a pattern of godly living are those that are qualified to serve in His kingdom. And then fifthly, and I'll close here because I bit off a lot, but fifthly, living the discipled life, living in patterns of imitating disciples or, or, or a pattern of godly living it's a part of our final joy in god when we enter into his presence so it's not just about this life here it's not just about the assurance that we have it's not just that we're in the will of god by becoming holy it's not just that we're glorifying god by our life here it's not just that it protects us from things that would destroy us otherwise or destroy our joy it also leads to and is part of our final joy in god when we enter into his presence In Jude 24, he gives a benediction to the Christians that he's writing to, and he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, in other words, for him who is able to keep you discipled and keep you living a holy life, to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. There's joy again. You're never going to get away from this. The discipled life is a life of joy. A life of holy living is a life of joy. Present joy and future joy. Present joy in the preservation of our life from all the sorrows that can come. Joy in the fact that our life brings glory to God. But future joy in that we will be presented as disciples as we live in a pattern of holy living. We will be presented in the presence of God for His glory with great joy. That's the discipled life. 
And so as we treasure Jesus and we set our affections on Jesus and He is the treasure in our field, He is the pearl of great price, as we are drawn to love the things that He loves, as we take a pattern of sound teaching to know God better and to conform our hearts after His heart, as we do all those things, those things should lead us into a pattern of holy living. A pattern of godly living. And that pattern of godly living brings glory to God and brings benefit and joy and happiness and protection to us. Let's pray. Father God, this is really a rich text. There's a lot going on here. And there's a lot going on because it's the Apostle Paul that wrote it. And so we just acknowledge today that, that we're not perfect, that we're not there yet. And Father, we further acknowledge that even when we acknowledge that we're not perfect and we're dissatisfied with ourselves, we acknowledge that a lot of that is actually based on pride because we're dissatisfied with how disappointed we are in ourselves. We're not really dissatisfied that we've disappointed you. And man, we have to shift our hearts. We have to shift our hearts so that that any dissatisfaction or discontentment that we have is because we have fallen short of giving you the glory that is your due and that is our joy. And so, Father, I pray for that revelation, that miraculous revelation by your Holy Spirit even today in my own life, that I'd be less concerned with what I think about myself and what my life does to glorify you would be a bigger, a bigger concern. And, Father, I thank you that we are brothers and sisters, that we have apostles, that we have great men and women of the faith, even in our own midst, that we can imitate that Paul simply calls us to imitate him as he imitates you. Not to be perfect, but to imitate him in striving after perfection. Not to be super holy or somehow untouchable, but just to strive after him in pursuing holiness. Father, this is the discipled life. This is the life of a disciple. And it's what we want for ourselves so that we can bring glory to you and ultimately receive the joy, the joy of a life lived well and worthily for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.